he was a wealthy man, and therefore he could buy anything he wanted. He took me through, and they said, well, back there in the corner, and they shined the light back, and they turned the lights on. He said, that's the car that Al Capone owned. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he had the car. He had the car. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is a podcast about objects and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Oracass. Episode 2 Type Box, Texas. TGI Fridays. I'm in a small coastal town about half an hour south of San Francisco. I'm in my garage on a hunt, looking for gardening shears. Rummaging around in the far corner, I bump into a metal table. And on the table, I notice an antique that I had never seen before. And as I studied it, I realized I had to learn more. It's some sort of tray or drawer made of worn dark wood and has metal reinforced corners. It's about the size of a small shoe box. When I picked it up, it was surprisingly heavy. I examined it further and saw that the metal corners flank both sides of the rectangular tray. On either side of the rusted metal, I saw engraved, Register Trade, Monotype Mark. The metal frame is raised creating a finger height gap. This space indicates that a lid was supposed to slide tightly to cover the tray's contents. But my tray doesn't have a lid. So I look down in the tray and I see three metal dividers just like a silverware organizer in a kitchen drawer. Intrigued, gardening project now forgotten, I carried the tray into my office to get a better look. I noticed some handwritten clues. I see an alphabet from A to Z listed vertically. Each letter is spaced deliberately, corresponding to the residue left in the first row. Then, on the opposite side of the tray, there is a phrase. Use 330 standard to line. I uncovered more answers that were in plain sight. On the front of the tray, there was a pre-printed paper label. This time, in faint pen, the owner of this object has filled in three of the fields. Case field, 18. Face number, 436. Then at the bottom of the label, for name of type, Dorchester script. Unlike episode one, I have no idea what this could be. It's some sort of tray, but for what? That's when I asked my mom some follow-up questions. She said that she bought it online four years ago and that she thought that it was a letterpress box. That makes more sense. She told me that she took a letterpress printing class at Foothill College in Los Altos Hills, California.
After some research, I sent some photos of my tray to a graphic and interactive design professor at Foothill College, Michael. He wrote back quickly and said that he thinks it holds type from the British monotype foundry. Michael tells me that this active type company grew in the middle of the 20th century. The monotype company made Dorchester script, which was housed in this box that I have here. Michael then sent me a link to see the font type. It looks like dainty, italicized cursive font with curly swirls at the ends of its letters. He tells me that monotype created the script in 1939 and the type font would be 81 years old, but isn't sure if the box is that old. Curious, I did some research on British monotype and found some promotional films from the 1950s and 1960s mentioning these typecasting boxes. Close beside the railway line at Salford, situated in the heart of the Surrey countryside, lies the monotype works, and in the large shops are made monotype machines for the use of printers in most parts of the world. Music? Yes, this composition is a favorite with printers in any country, whatever the language. A monotype composition mold isn't just a block of steel, it's a precision instrument. Every working day we receive quite a lot of orders for these molds. This is how we should like to be able to dispatch them in their boxes with a highly skilled and knowledgeable technician to act as guardian to each one to see it safely to its destination and superintend its aftercare. Handle with care and understanding. As those films stated, the boxes were shipping containers for matrices or molds. I dug deeper to find more information. At the end of his email, Michael said that he would send the pictures of the tray around to some colleagues at Foothill. An anonymous colleague of his replied. He said that he recognized these boxes at Mackenzie and Harris, the M&H type foundry in San Francisco, and suggested I contact them. So I did. And Chris got back to me with more information. He sent me an email with pictures of the font, their type foundry building, and the typecasting boxes next to caster machines. He essentially gave me a virtual tour of the foundry. He also sent me a link. It was him being interviewed by the late Anthony Bourdain in a show called Rockcraft from 2015. Surreal. Though Chris is dwarfed by the tall Bourdain, he is quick and incisive with his thick square glasses and foundry uniform. I called Chris a couple weeks later. I'm Chris Godek, and I'm a typecaster and printer at Mackenzie and Harris Type Foundry. We are the oldest continuous-running type foundry in the country. Before quarantine, we give tours every week of the whole facility. We're actually now housed in the Presidio in a, like a 16,000-square-foot building where we actually make books the old-fashioned way. So we cast the type, and then we print them in-house, and then we hand-bind each copy of the edition. Quick interruption here to say that I learned that my tray is really called a box and it would hold a matrix, sometimes called matrices or mats. These copper or brass molds are used to cast letters in printing. Essentially, a matrix is a hollowed-out letter that holds the ink. Back to the interview with Chris. How, how long does a typical book, let's say it's like 500 pages, how long would that take to make one? 
So the way it works is we do about three books a year of no more than 400 per edition. So from the matrices that would have been housed in that box takes anywhere from two to eight weeks. And then the printing process takes about the same time. And then the binding process takes about three months from start to finish. And everything works in like batches and waves. We'll cast all the type and then it moves to the press room where all the type is printed, all the pages are printed. And then it's to the bindery where they do batch work of the fold, all the pages, and then they'll, you know, collate them together, glue them back and round the books, and then they'll put the cases on them after that. For the box that you have, those matrices, every character would be cast one at a time. So every letter that you see on a page would have been put in its correct spot by hand. On the right side, they wrote, Use 330 standard to line. What do you think that means? So I'm assuming that that is referring to another sort to be lined up to. So when he goes to set up the machine, he'll line up all the characters to that one sort. The face of the type lives on a square body, and that is lined up up and down left and right on that square. And so that has to get lined up up and down so that when you go to grab sorts from a case and put them in there, so it looks correctly lined up to the other characters on the left and right of it. I asked him about the fields written on the paper label. The 18 is the point size of the font. Then the 436 is essentially the serial number for the Dorchester script. So there would be specimen books. You'd be able to open them up and look inside and see an example of all the different sizes in a specimen book. So if you were going to buy a purchase type, you'd be able to see what 18 point looked like printed. And in order to flip through hundreds quickly, there's a reference number. And that's what that number refers to. But generally, when, when a company makes a new font like this one, is it usually made for a specific purpose? Back in the day, a company could have commissioned a typeface to be made for them. So for Dorchester Script, I think it would have been like Montep Company was coming out with a collection of different paces that they wanted to sell, and that would have been one of them. Chris also described the detailed process of making all the matrices for Dorchester Script. His colleagues are craftsmen who dedicate their lives to this skill. Each matrix is the width of a thumbnail, so the process requires incredible precision. I was shocked to learn it takes one full day to carve a single matrix and close to two full months for a full font set. Uppercase, lowercase, numbers, punctuation, and accents. I've also wondered too, the word script and font, is there a difference or are they kind of synonymous? So script will refer to, you know, it looks like calligraphic. That's a, like a script face. So script is a style of face. And then the typeface would be Dorchester. So be yeah. like saying something is sans serif, like that's a style of typeface, just like script is also a style of typeface. Who do you think would have had this, judging by what they wrote on it and kind of the use of it? Would it have been a collector or someone who's really serious in, in the profession? I would have assumed it would be a typecaster, would have owned the box. I would have assumed it would have come from someone that was going to use it. So assume that the matrices would have been inside of it. I do wonder, though, where those matrices went. My assumption is, is they got sold for scrap metal. They're a pain in the butt to have when they're not in the box. <laughs> If I were to sell this box, judging by some of its antique history, what, what do you think it's worth if I were to sell it to the right person? Probably have to pay somebody to take it off your hands. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for, for your time. Awesome. Yeah. Whenever this quarantine's over, if you're still in the Bay Area, you should come take a tour of our place. Oh, dude, I would love that. All right. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Okay. Later.
So now we know what this object is, but I now want to know who owned it. I flipped the box over. I saw a full name and an address written in Sharpie on the back. To protect his privacy, I will not use his full name. We'll call him Bob. His address is in a small city in central Texas. I put that information in to Ancestry. I find the man instantly. He was born in 1927 in a city in northern Texas. The address written on the back of this box was the same on Ancestry when he lived there in 1992. I looked up his life timeline on Ancestry and found the typical lifetime milestones, birth, marriage, and death. He lived until the year 2011, at the age of 83, but his life through Ancestry didn't connect to this object or what he did for a living. I kept digging for more information about Bob. As Chris mentioned, it is possible that Bob could have used this for its rightful purpose, to hold copper matrices. Judging by the writing on the box and the clear residue of many small metal plates, it seemed clear that Bob was a type of printer at some point in his life. I found that he printed for the Herald and Democrat in the early 1980s. Things were making some sense, but I still had no idea what Bob did from 1985 until his death in 2011. I went to newspapers.com to find any information about Bob in his small Texas town. Luckily, the town had their own local newspaper, and he was mentioned four times in one section, building permits. Bob paid over $5,000 for canopy and sign installations for a TGI Fridays in 2004. I typed in my notes. Type box, Texas, TGI Fridays. How do all these fit in the same story? The address of the fast food chain was listed in the newspaper. I went to Google Maps and typed in the address. It's closed, permanently. The building is still there though. It sits on the corner of the two busiest streets in town. Deserted, derelict, desolate. But in the upper right corner, I can still see the residue of the iconic gothic TGI Friday's letters. Maybe Bob was involved with this establishment for the font, but he paid for the installations of the signs, not the removal of them. I found an article saying that this establishment officially closed its doors for good in the summer of 2018. The chance of finding the last decade of Bob's life was now that much harder. I had no more leads. There is always a point in a case, and the best thing to do is to use the most common search engine. Genealogy websites, newspaper archives, and digital directories all look for a large number of results for one specific topic. Families, headlines, or addresses. Whereas Google's search engine looks for a large number of results for every topic. I decided to put Bob's information into Google. The eighth link down was of a PDF pamphlet for the fossils. They are the historians of amateur journalism, and Bob was mentioned. It was his obituary. But there was no new information here. Some light was shed on his affiliation with organizations like the Amalgamated Printers Association. There was more mention of his hobbies than of his career. Quote, by the 1970s, printing was a hobby and real estate his occupation. End quote. I wanted to know more. David was the guy who wrote the obituary, so I sent him an email. He responded with some good news, quote, Thank you for your interesting message. When I was putting together the obituary for Bob, I asked around to find someone who knew him. My friend Rich Hopkins of West Virginia had actually visited him a couple of times and had some colorful memories to share, end quote. Colorful memories? That's intriguing. David sent me Rich's contact info and correspondence that Rich had sent him in 2014 for Bob's obituary. That email was four paragraphs long, full of information. 
I reached out to Rich, he replied with a lot of details, but he said he only met up with Bob twice in Texas. Graciously, Rich made an 11 minute video showing me how typecasting works. Okay. Hi, this is Rich Hopkins down in West Virginia. I'm a monotype freak and somebody just received a box similar to this, wanted to know what it is and what was in it. He looks in his mid-60s with large glasses over his sharp eyes. He wears a bright blue fleece that reads, World's Greatest Pop Pop. Ironically, Chris from the M&H Type Foundry knows Rich and refers to him as... Like the godfather of typecasting. So, I called the godfather. My name is Richard Hopkins, and I'm a monotype and uh, hot metal typecasting nut and have been for 50 or 60 years. So why we're mostly talking here now is because you know Bob. So if you could, just tell me the first time that you met him and what he was like. I don't know exactly how he became aware of me or became aware of an organization which I formed in 1978 called the American Typecasting Fellowship. And we decided that we would meet every two years thereafter. The first time I met Bob was at an ATF meeting in Indianapolis. And I met him three or four times after that. And, and he had a mother load of printing equipment, mainly monotype and stuff like that, at his uh, home in Texas. And as a matter of fact, he actually helped us teach some of the seminars in Indianapolis and all that. He was really into it. Uh, he enjoyed the machines. And a nice guy, too. No, no problem with Bob at all. And so that's where I first met him. He was a wealthy man, and therefore he could buy anything he wanted. But he was also a penny pincher. <laughs> the government printing office was disposed of over a period of maybe six years, and uh, they held blind auctions. It turned out that he won a, a massive collection of monotype composition matrices, which I also was bidding on, and he beat me by $15. <laughs> And he loaded probably five or six tons of stuff onto a pickup truck and drove it back to Texas. And, you know, he, the truck was overloaded to, to a point where it just makes your head swirl. That one was one of the first hauls he remembers Bob getting. But he recollects another load that Bob told him about years later. Another cute story about him is that the, he went to Dallas and uh, bought a typography plant down there. And of course, a typography plant consists of several machines and lots of matrices and all that. Uh, I don't know how he managed. He went and found a used bread truck uh, and bought it so that he could haul the stuff back from Dallas. So that's what he did. And of course, bread trucks were not built to handle heavy weight. They were built to handle bread. But he loaded that whole plant in the truck, drove it back to where he lived, back the truck into his building and parked it there. And it was still there, parked with flat tires on all four wheels and completely loaded 10 years after he bought it. <laughs> and he said, well, I've just never gotten around unloading the truck. <laughs> and so the, the whole plant was still on the truck. Then Rich explains the building that Bob had built for these kind of halls on his property. The, the building was a, you would call it a barn, but most barns are not concrete floors with cinder block walls and windows in them and a second floor 
capable of holding tons and tons of stuff. It, it was a very well-built building, and it was large enough that he could have that truck parked in the loading dock bay on the back, and you wouldn't even be aware that the truck was there. It was that big, and it was floor-to-ceiling. Uh, stuffed full of equipment. And most likely that's where the box of matrices that you now have a box for came from, is Dallas. I have no idea how it ended up in your hands. Usually the box with the matrices is kept that way. And the fact that it got out of his collection is kind of curious too. I just have no idea how that happened. Do you think that, from what you remember, was it common for him to write his name and address on the back of these antiques, or was it more just haphazard? Since his name was on it, most likely he loaned it to somebody else. And that's why I put his name on it to establish ownership. There was so much of that stuff in his shop that he, he wouldn't have put his name on it unless it was going out of the building for some reason. As, as substantial as the box is, he probably even put the stamp on it and mailed it that way. There's no reason to put it yeah. in anything else. It was tough enough to take the mail. Since I heard from Chris that Rich was very knowledgeable about the Monotype Company, I asked him about their history, when they started to their closing. Well, American Monotype started everything in Philadelphia. Once they got the machine perfected, they realized that they needed to build a plant in order to manufacture the machines. They just needed money. And at that time, getting money was going to England. And so the principals of the American company went to England. And as it turned out, they met the people that ultimately invested on the ship back to England. They gained rights to the machine in England as part of the financial exchange. The American company made machines for the English people to about 1920, and from that time forward, the English put up their own plant and they continued to manufacture the machines. As it turned out, they ultimately got permission to sell machines everywhere in the world except the Western Hemisphere. So the American company had the Western Hemisphere and the English company had the rest of the world. And they became a, a, a larger company. The American company suffered badly from uh, corporate trading after World War II. And that ultimately wiped them out. It's a very sad story. That box of matrices that you now have a box for definitely is not any older than 39. But those boxes were used for a period of 20 years. You know, you could buy Dorchester in 39 or you could buy it in 72. They continue to offer it. Rich then explains the extent of Bob's massive antique collection. He had a massive collection. He even had the uh, antique cars, and he collected uh, music boxes. He took me through, and he said, well, back there in the corner, and he shined the light back, and they turned the lights on. He said, that's the car that Al Capone owned. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, it was a special car. He says, it it had walls that were a quarter of an inch solid steel to protect him in case somebody attacked him. (laughs) He had the car. He had the car. He also set up a Pullman car off the railroad in his front yard, and that was going to be his guest house. And it was under construction, but never finished. But it was fascinating. He took me through it. It was the presidential car for Teddy Roosevelt. Was there something that he didn't collect? Not that I know of. (laughs) Rich first met Bob at the American Typecasting Fellowship in 1985, then went to Texas to see him. Here is an account of his second visit to Bob's place in the year 2000. And then I went. 
went the second time to see him about three years later with uh, Don Black, who ran a better press typecasting service in uh, near Toronto. He and I probably spent uh, 45 minutes with Bob and his stuff. And our goal to go down there the second time was to see if we could buy his equipment because at that time, Bob had pretty much phased himself out. But we were unsuccessful, and uh, but we had a good visit. We took a very thorough tour of his plant. Uh, he took us out to dinner and some things like that. It was a cordial meeting, but he thought at the time that he could sell this equipment for loads and loads of money in South America. But he was not focused on the fact that the Macintosh and modern technology had gotten into the whole world, not just the United States. Nevertheless, it had dried up by the time we were talking with him. Well, I was reading what you had written to David in 2014 about the obituary, and I just have some questions about that correspondence that you had with him. He fought in World War II, and he started to, you know, essentially be a loan shark, right, and really think about money at that age. Yeah. Of course, he's an old poor country boy, and country boys are usually very, very keen on what money's worth and all that stuff. He also had no interest in alcohol, and, and of course, most soldiers drank up all of the money that they had. And he took advantage of it because he didn't go out and party and drink, so he still had his paycheck. while all the other guys didn't have any money at all, and so they borrowed money from Bob. But I presume that he charged somewhat of an interest on it, but he ended up with a lot of money. After serving in World War II, Bob moved to this small town in eastern Texas and found new means of getting money. Supposedly, that part of Texas was very much into the oil boom in the middle of the last century, and that's where Bob got his money because he had invested in real estate after World War II. Of course, it just so happened that some of the property that he had had oil on it. Before World War II, with the oil boom, the town grew tremendously, and suddenly he owned a lot of real estate that was highly desirable, and that's why he ended up with a lot of money, because he did selectively sell stuff. He even had uh, at least one building in downtown, but he also had full printing equipment. I think the uh, local newspaper got into a strike with the printing union, and that was not at all unusual in the 40s and the 50s. And the newspaper decided that uh, they would just abandon their plant and uh, publish the newspaper elsewhere with uh, non-union labor, and uh, Bob set the plant up for them. And they used it for uh, several weeks until the strike was settled. Since Rich mentioned that he owned buildings in town, I decided to ask him about the TGI Friday's connection. He knew everybody in town, and you know, he was there before the town grew and blossomed. It was, it's a fairly large town now, with wide streets and all that stuff. He, he knew the town well, and he, he knew everybody from the, the mayor all the way up and down. Modern parlance, you very frequently hear negative references to the Good Old Boys Network, and I'm sure that Bob was involved in the Good Old Boys Network. Uh, that's how he managed to make the deals that he made and all that kind of stuff. And if there was an opportunity, and it was something that he could somehow exploit, I'm sure he would have gotten involved in it, and that's probably the TGI Friday thing was all about. He played with the idea of becoming a commercial printer, but it wasn't necessary. But he had a portion of his uh, building set up as one would set up a commercial plant. And he did a little bit of work like that. He did political posters and stuff like that. I don't think he ever worked for anybody else for any period of time. In the email, Rich said that Bob and his first wife had an incident 
This made the last five years before she passed away very strained. Here is Rich summarizing the last years with Bob and his first wife in the early 2000s. With his wife, I would say that it lasted four or five years. Then she got sick. She also got her senses about herself. Anyway, he took care of her for the next couple of years until she died. So they sort of reconciled before she died. Wow. Well, that that does show a lot of character to, to do that. Yeah. Oh, he was a good guy. I, 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 he never took advantage of anybody that I know of, and, and he was very like, generous at uh, sharing things. At the end of the call, Rich recommended I talk to somebody about my podcast. I told him that I'll get in touch with his friend, and this was his response. Split some time aside because he's like me. He talks and talks and talks. <laughs> well, uh, if, if people didn't talk, there'd be no story. There you go. There you go. Well, there we have it. A typecaster's box from a Texas man who collected everything has made its way into my collection. Every object has a story. This was episode two of five for season one of Object Obscura. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to more, then rate and subscribe by hitting that subscribe button and clicking the number of stars. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write me a review because I love feedback. Go to Instagram at object.obscura and Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast to see all related pictures of the object on today's episode. Do you want to have your object be on the show? Then write me a message, write where you're from and the story of your object. I know we got some Singapore audience out there. It can be something creepy, mysterious, or just strange. Message me at Thatcher, T-H-A-T-C-H-E-R, at object-obscura.com, or on Instagram, Facebook, and the website, object-obscura.com. This was an Anchor Distributed Podcast, created, composed, written, researched, and edited by me, Thatcher Workass. Previously played music is Thinking Machines by Track Tribe. Thanks to the M&H Type Foundry, Aryan Press, Salvage Nation Vintage, and PrintingFilms.com. Further thanks to YouTube Audio Library and Freesound. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Next episode comes out October 30th on All Hallows Eve. The next object is from the late 1800s, and it's wrapped in the skin of a dead animal. See you in two weeks. Yeah.